0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: If, like Brad, you're a fan of cycling history, here's a brand-new cycling podcast from Eurosport to get you through the winter. Recycle is a retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial, and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history search Eurosport Recycle wherever you get your podcasts. And to save you a job, here's episode one. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgoss. Recycle will explore legendary tales from the professional peloton's past, From Eddie Merckx's great gamble on the Galibier in 1972 to the kidnappings and controversy behind South America's first Grand Tour win to the World Championships road race that saw USA teammates Greg LeMond and Jacques Boyer become the bitterest of rivals. Plenty then to look back on, and much to look forward to. But we start with cycling's most famous monument, the Hell of the North. How did it come to be that the official list of Paris-Roubaix winners exceeds the number of races by one? Most of the fans present at the Roubaix Velodrome on Easter Sunday in April 1949 would have roared with delight as Frenchman André Mahé outsprinted Belgium's Franz Lienen to win the most prestigious of one-day classics. The fans might have found the riders' unconventional entrance into the velodrome via the press area over the gantry on the opposite end of the track a little puzzling. But in a time before the race winner took home a cobblestone, they would have witnessed the relieved rider from Brittany raise the Rizzler cigarette paper trophy above his head on the top step of the podium. Had they left the velodrome straight away, they might not have had the chance to whistle their disapproval when it was announced only minutes later that Victory had instead been awarded to Circe Coppi, the Italian rider who had led the chasing pack home to finish a distant third. But on buying the next day's copy of Le Keep, they'd have seen it spelled out on the front page. "My first after riding 200 metres too far, disqualified. So what actually happened? First, a little context. The big favourites for the 1949 Paris-Roubaix were the young Belgian Rick van Steenbergen, the defending champion, and Italian superstar Fausto Coppi, Cersei's older and more illustrious brother. Just days before, at the Fleche Wallon, there had been what the journalist Peter Cossins, author of The Monuments, describes as some rancour. The Belgian had been dropped from the lead group that included Coppi, explains Cossins, but somehow managed to get back up to them before the finish, where he breezed a victory in the sprint. Copy accused the Belgian press cars of helping their man, and the pair started Roubaix determined to prevent the other winning. This opened the door to some of the peloton's smaller fish, including Circe and France's André Mahé. Towards the end of the 244-kilometre race, Mahé, along with compatriot Jesus Jacques Mojica and the Belgian Franz Linen, approached the velodrome with a small lead over a chase group that included the younger Copy. In the chaos, they followed the official cars on their diversion off the route rather than enter the track. At the entrance to the velodrome, there were crowds everywhere blocking the way, Mahé said in an interview with Pro Cycling magazine in 2007. I looked around for where to go, and I was directed round the outside wall of the track to where the team cars had to park. People said I should have known the way into the track. But how do you know a thing like that at the end of the Paris-Roubaix, when you've raced all day over roads like that? A gendarme signalled the way to go, and that's the way I went. The blame was indeed laid firmly at the door of the policeman in question, who panicked on seeing the riders hurtle towards the intersection at 50 kilometers per hour, surrounded by the race cavalcade. Jacques Godet, in his editorial for L'Equipe, wrote, I found myself just behind the three victims at the precise moment of the incident, and I can certify that the police agents placed at the intersection of the correct route did, by their obvious arm gestures, mislead Mujica, Mahé and Lenin, thus taking away all meaning for this particular Paris-Roubaix. Realising the mistake, Mujica, the fastest finisher of the three, skidded but broke his pedal. Mahe and Lenin, meanwhile, sought a way out of the pandemonium. They were eventually waved up some stairs to the press gallery, where they could clamber down and enter the track on the opposite side to the usual entrance. The panic over, Mahe beat Lenin in the sprint to take the biggest win of his career, and, along with it, the biggest asterisk. Less than a minute later, Cersei Coppi led a select chasing group over the line in the consolation sprint while Mahé was still celebrating. The race was over, but the dispute had just begun. On learning about Mahé's supposed shortcut to the finish line, Coppi's Italian Bianchi Ursus team lodged an official complaint, citing Article 156 of the UCI rulebook, which dictated the original itinerary must be regularly followed. Mahé, who rode for French rivals Stella Dunlop, had barely completed his lap of honour when it was announced over the loudspeaker that Cersei Coppi was the winner. But the rules were clearly open to interpretation, for Article 156 also said that the racers must conform to indications given by the agents of the race and of law enforcement. In this case, the agents of law had clearly directed the leaders off the original itinerary, adding, ironically, an extra 200 metres to their ride. While a keep had to abide by the official verdict, the French Sports Daily was disgusted with the decision. In the guise of compensation, the newspaper awarded Mahé, Lenin, and Mujica a sum comparable to the earnings of the top three finishers. Scant consolation to the man who thought he'd won the race. Even the French Federation interrogated me, Mahé later told Les Woodland, author of Paris-Roubaix, The Inside Story. I felt like a condemned man. They seemed to take the view that I had cheated somehow. I ended up having to justify myself, even though all I'd done was follow the way I'd been directed. Five days later, however the French Cycling Federation overturned the result and reinstated Mahé as winner, in second. The Italians then complained to the UCI and the arguments rumbled on until August when, exasperated, the sport's governing body declared the race void and postponed making a final decision until November at their annual meeting in Zurich. Besides acting as Cersei's foil on the day, Fausto Coppi played a huge part in the biggest win in his brother's short career. The elder copy had by then won the Giro d'Italia twice, and Milan-San Remo three times. It was he who urged Cersei to complain about the results. Born four years apart, the two copy brothers were inseparable. While Fausto was shy and aloof, Cersei was La Dolce Vita personified, a ladies' man, allegedly extremely well-endowed, who drank, smoked, danced and sung. A happier yet uglier Fausto, according to one Italian journalist at the time. When it came to cycling, however, Cersei was the antithesis of his brother. An accordion, a duck and a giraffe. These were all things to which Cersei was compared while in the saddle. According to John Foote, author of Pedalar Pedalar, Coppi Jr. was said to be the only professional cyclist in the world who did not know how to ride a bike. It was unthinkable that Cersei Coppi might win Paris-Roubaix, the Italian cycling expert Herbie Sykes tells Ian McGregor in his book To Hell on a Bike, riding Paris-Roubaix, the toughest race in cycling. He was Cersei, he was a decent gregario, No question, but he wasn't a potential winner by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, on that day, with Fausto and van Steenbergen marking each other out, is said to have allowed his brother to put in an attack. He even, according to Mahé, gave him a push to get him away. When he discovered what happened at the finish, Fausto used his significant clout to put pressure on the race jury to overturn the result and declare Cersei the winner. And when the French Federation reinstated Mahé as winner five days later, Coppi dug his heels in and threatened to boycott the Tour de France that July and Paris-Roubaix the following year in 1950. While the final decision wasn't made by the UCI until November, it is thought that Fausto Coppi, who was box office to a race like the Tour, received assurances that Cersei would not lose his title. There was a political plot twist too. The whole controversy took place against the backdrop of an election for the UCI presidency, which added yet more intrigue to the situation, with candidates wary of keeping member nations sweet. It was said that Belgium had sided with Italy to spite the French, which made things more delicate for the UCI president, Achille Jouenois, who was up for re-election and needed the Italian votes. Fausto applied extra pressure by telling journalists that he expected Cersei to be given his victory. And so, says Sykes, the Italian stall was definitely set out. There was also the newly introduced Challenge de Grange Colombo, a season-long road race competition that ran from 1948 to 1958. It was invented by L'Equipe, founded by Henri de Grange, and La Gazzetto della Sport, overseen by Emilio Colombo. This was a forerunner of the World Tour, with points awarded across the main races of the calendar year. If things weren't politicised enough in post-war Europe, this competition encouraged riders from certain nations to spread their wings. The Italian greats started racing in France to gain points, and Coppi, the greatest of them all, was scheduled to ride his first tour in July, having taken to the cobbles of Roubaix for the first time in the spring. With all this in mind, it was perhaps inevitable that the UCI came up with a solution they hoped would please everyone. One that saw both André Mahé and Circe Coppi, ex have their names adorned to a brass plaque in the showers at the Roubaix velodrome. They fudged it, says Sykes, who felt that Mahé had been short-changed. Mahé and the French Federation saw it as treachery, but they had to swallow it. For years, Mahé was bitter and always claimed he won Paris-Roubaix fair and square. So, what became of the protagonists? Despite his threat, Fausto Coppi rode his maiden Tour de France that year and beat compatriot and rival Gino Bartoli to the yellow jersey. It secured him the first Giro Tour double in history and, of course, he returned to Roubaix in 1950 where he won with one of his astonishing solo breaks. But none of his many wins gave Il Campionismo as much happiness as the one that he helped secure for his younger brother in 1949. Fausto loved passionately his younger, less talented brother that nature had neglected a little and who had grown up in the gigantic shadow of his older brother, wrote the French journalist Olivier Desar. Little Circe's victory gave Fausto the biggest joy of his career. It's strangely as if it was his most beautiful victory. But tragedy struck just two years later when Cerce, aged 28, died from a brain hemorrhage after crashing on tramlines in Turin during the Giro del Piemonte in June 1951. Having seen his brother pass away in his arms, Fausto didn't eat for three days and vowed to give up cycling. The tour started just four days later. Coppy rode wearing a helmet, but his heart wasn't in it. He finished 10th. He would win the Giro twice and the tour again, but he was never quite the same rider without his lucky charm and talisman by his side. After he died of malaria in 1960, Fausto was reunited with Cersei in a grave in their hometown of Castellania, about 100 kilometers southeast of Turin. Mahé, however, passed away at his home in Brittany in 2010, aged 90. He would win Paris Tour in 1950 and finish third in Roubaix in 1952. But he always insisted that the UCI had capitulated to political pressure applied by Cersei's famous brother. Coppi, said Mahé, wanted his brother to have a big victory. He was a great champion, Coppi, but to do what he did, to protest like that to get a victory for his brother, that wasn't dignified for a champion. That was below him. A champion like that should never have stooped that low. I never spoke to him about it. Never did. Why should I? So, has anything similar happened since? Interestingly, Paris-Roubaix is not the only one of cycling's five monuments to have more winners than its total number of additions. As Killian Kelly, stats guru and co-editor of the Roadbook Cycling Almanac 2018, explains, something similar happened in the 1957 Liège-Bastogne-Liège. Germain Derecq won but was disqualified because he went over a downed railway crossing, so the win was given to fellow Belgian Franz Schubin. Then, after a few angry appeals, Derecq was reinstated. This was followed by complaints by Schubin, so in the end they were both declared the winner. Kelly also recalls the bizarre conclusion to the 1986 Belgian National Championships for Novices when, owing to a lack of photo-finished camera equipment on the line, the race officials could not tell who won the tight sprint between Wilfred Nielsen and Serge Begay. Taking inspiration, perhaps, from football's penalty shootout model, they made the pair of them re-race the final kilometre one-on-one. Nielsen won. Could the same thing happen at the Roubaix Velodrome in modern racing? In a word, no. It's not that it's no longer possible for riders to go off course. Walt Poles famously did so in the closing moments of a stage in the 2017 Giro d'Italia. But the cop-out of a joint winner decision would no longer cut the mustard with today's savvy fans. There are so many more eyes on these things these days, says Kelly. In 1949, it wasn't until fans read the papers the next day that they learned of Mahé's plight. But nowadays, everyone sees things straight away. And as we've seen in the recent past, footage that emerges on social media can have a bearing on these things. Disqualifications for Vincenzo Nibali and Roman Bardet for separate incidents of sticky bidons come to mind. Race organisers don't get away with skirting rules anymore because we're all amateur race referees these days, says Kelly. They'd be forced to make a decision. Cossins reckons that, today, Mahé might not have kept his win because he did not complete the official route. But perhaps there's another side to it, says Cossins. That 1949 race, and therefore Mahé's name, stand out because of what happened at the finale. The incident made it an extraordinary Roubaix that is well remembered. I'm not sure if we'd know Mahé's name so well if this hadn't been the case. So perhaps the original winner of Paris-Roubaix 70 years ago should have been pleased that the controversy immortalised his name. But try telling that to André Mahé. He has to share a shower with Circe Copy forevermore. This has been the first episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. You can find a further 12 episodes of Our Ride Through Cycling History by searching Eurosport Recycle wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, Brad will be back with a new season of The Bradley Wiggins Show in 2020.